Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent, and on today's show, we're going to speak to Chef Donald Smith. Chef Donald J. Smith was born and raised in New Orleans, heart and soul of Creole culture. It was there that he learned the ins and outs of authentic Creole cuisine at the feet of his mother and uncle. Known in culinary circles as Chef D, chefs specialize in Creole, Cajun, and soul food. Chef D has owned several restaurants. His portfolio boasts preparing meals for various entities including conventions, corporations, celebs like Barry Bonds, the OJs, Clark's sister, just a few. New Orleans native is a natural born innovative chef. Chef Donald has traveled the world and interacted with other first-rate chefs worldwide. He has had the rare opportunity to share his expertise and passion for good food with other chefs from countries like Brazil, Italy, and Spain. Enhance and broaden his knowledge and twists to things. He attended Louisiana Vocational Tech and Delgado Community College, he earned many culinary arts certificates. Through his company, Chef D Services, not only does he mix his own spices for the spice line, the chef spices and foods, but he is also with cookbooks. Donald Luke Smith, the world's chef, and most recently the underground chefs, for which he was the visionary author. Chef D now has 20 years of experience in culinary cuisine preparation under his belt and has received many awards in gumbo competitions and athletes. In 2018, he was voted one of Louisiana's best chefs, and in 2020, he received the culinary excellence award from the National Black Chef Association. Outside of the kitchen, the chef is very active in his career, involved in various causes. And what's great about today is that I'm going to have some of his wonderful gumbo on the show. So on that note, let's start the show. Welcome, Chef D. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I'm really thank you for taking the time to do this, speak to me today. I mean, it's around lunchtime, so <laughs> hopefully uh, this interview will get people hungry to go out and maybe request some of your sauces or, or gumbo because, um, you know, it's just it's just that time. And, and I'm not going to spoil it for everybody, but I just... I, I couldn't wait to have it during our talk today. I had to taste it a little bit beforehand. It was it was quite good. So I can't wait to just to talk about that and your journey and how you got to be Chef D. So I'd like to, yeah, just start there. What made you decide that you wanted to be a chef, especially in New Orleans where food is just so plentiful and it's kind of a staple of New Orleans? What made you decide to that this was your call? Okay, um, I started cooking at a very early age, like around seven. My mom was a um, a single mom, so I kind of cook. You know, she'll call me on the phone and she'll tell me what to do. Keep it on LO, I mean low. So I would just cook certain things because, like I tell people all the time, we were latchkey kids before there were latchkey kids. So we had to make sure we had something to eat till your mom got off from work at five or six o'clock by getting out of school at two o'clock. So I started cooking like that. Then we eventually, we moved with my uncle and he'd done a lot of cooking. So I just watched him and I picked up the traits that he had 
And longer during my years, you know, I went to culinary school, but I went back to culinary school late in my like in my twenties because I did other odd and end jobs before I really figured out that I wanted to be a chef. So I done other little things here and there. I I had my own catering company before I even went back to school, and I just started going to school. I started in um in the Bay Area. I started going to Mission College out there in San Francisco area. Then I went back to New Orleans. I went to two Votex schools, and I went to the um, community college, Delgado Community College, and graduated with a social degree in culinary arts. So, yeah, i just been cooking for over 30 years. I done worked for a lot of different places, the New Orleans Convention Center, Aramark, the Hilton Corporation. I mean, I've been around for a while. Wow, that's, that's a pretty impressive resume. So I always thought this was um, an interesting question because, you know, food can be very subjective as far as what you like and what you don't like. So when did you realize that you, you were very good at this and your gifts could be spread, you know, amongst the world? Like when I first when I when I first got my first job in the industry, the guy was like, man, you 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 gotta work in the, the sports bar. Because I was just coming from closing down a restaurant with a friend of mine, having my own catering company. And there was this guy, he was like, well, you never worked in no big restaurants before and you don't, you can't do this, so you're going to work in a sports bar. I'm like, okay, to get my foot in the door. But I never made it to the sports bar because I, I went straight to the fine dining restaurant because the night I was supposed to go to um, the sports bar, the guy didn't show up on the fine dining line. So I went straight to the fine dining line and I showed them what I can do and I stayed on the fine dining line. So it's just, you know, cooking, I don't ever say that I'm, I'm a best cook because we learn something in this game every day. Every day is somebody, you might cook your gumbo this way, I might cook it this way, but we collaborate and put it together. Now we got another taste to it. So you're always learning something in this game of cooking on a daily basis. There's always a new technique coming out. There's always a new taste. There's always a new spice. There's always something that you can do to enhance any meal that you're doing. Okay. Oh, well, that's, that's good to know. Back in 2018, you received an award for being one of the best chefs uh, in the world. So how did that feel? And what? how did it kind of uh, change the trajectory of what you're doing now? When I got the call to say that I was going to be um, selected as one of the best chefs in Louisiana for 2018, it was, it was really exciting because I was at this point in my life where I was um, in my restaurant and I was kind of you know, going through it, you know, we are, we go through it on a daily basis. I'm still going through, you know, going through it. But when I got that call that day, it just uplifted my day to show me that I am, you know, I can stand with the best of the best. And when you can stand with the best of the best, I mean, people are like, why you don't go on competitions and why you don't, because I'm not in this for competition. I'm in this because this is what I like to do. And this is what I love to do. It's like a, it's part of my therapy. Um, this is just part of therapeutic for me. I can get in the kitchen, turn on some music, and just go to work. And I can get in there. I can cook a meal for two hundred people by myself. Just if I got everything I need, I'm just I'm just in my zone. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I know that in a pre in a previous interview I saw, you know, in preparing for this, uh, you had mentioned something about um, you know black chefs. Uh, versus, you know, in New Orleans, maybe not necessarily seen, but I really wanted to de dive deep a little bit and talk about, what, you know, what is the landscape for black chefs in New Orleans? The landscape for a black chef in New Orleans is we're we're the we're the background 
And it's time that we get the light shined on us and we come step forward. I mean, that's why my book is titled Underground Chef because I consider myself as an underground chef because I don't get the recognition from the Caucasian chefs that the Caucasian chefs get compared to the African-American chefs. We don't get that recognition. Even, you know, we have Black Restaurant Week, but they have other um, days in New Orleans cooling it and they don't, they don't really recognize us. So we, we have to recognize ourselves. So we're standing, you know, with different groups. We get together and we recognize each other. And, you know, we have to support one another. And I try to tell people all the, day, all the time in, in, this, in this industry, we have to support one another. As a black chef, as a black cook, as a black business owner, we have to support each other in order for ourselves to stand out. So by saying, because New Orleans is primarily a, a black city, correct? It is new, yeah. New Orleans is primarily black, yes. Okay. Is it hard for the for the community to support black chefs, or is it just the fact they don't get the same, I guess, recognition outside of New Orleans? We don't get the same recognition. I mean, it's dozens of black restaurants in New Orleans. I mean, you have your one or two that that's going to be, you know, Miss Lear Chase is an icon of New Orleans. Yes, our restaurant is always going to be on the forefront. So when people come into New Orleans, they want to go to the legendary Little Chase restaurant. But, you know, they don't go to the outskirts and to the little communities where our restaurants are. I mean, oh, you have to you have to really get them. You have to get them to come to your restaurant. You got to draw that attention to get them to come to your restaurant because you're not on the, again, you're not on the forefront where your restaurant is in the top 10 with, New Orleans restaurants. You might be way on the bottom 20 if they put a list out with you on it. So you're not in the top 10. Everybody, when they come to New Orleans, they're going to go to the top 10 restaurants. And they might not have an African-American restaurant in that top 10. Oh, I see. So it's really more, a lot about marketing and I guess also trying to keep the patrons or the tourists more into the city as opposed to getting to the outskirts. Where, yes. Where oh, I heard I was watching a show on Netflix about the Yakiman lady. And I was, yeah. I was like, I wanted to go to New Orleans, New Orleans right then just to taste yeah. that. It just, it sounded yeah. so good. She, that's a friend of mine, Miss Linda Green. And she's one chop. She's, she's, she's well known and out throughout the community for her Yakiman. And she was just on um, street foods for, for yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Street foods. Yes. And, that's what she does on Sundays. We is our culture. We have this thing called Second Line. So she started selling her yakimi at the Second Line on Sunday out of her truck, and she still comes back to the community every every other Sunday, and she'll sell her yakimi out of her truck when she's not doing a a big event somewhere. Mm. So that's how she was able. You know, she's able, and she's real real rounded and connected with the community. That's great. And so I noticed that you're. Well known for your sauces and spices, um, which is kind of a different take than just selling food. So, what made you decide uh, to focus on that as your calling card, so to speak, as opposed to just food? Actually, I started doing my own spices in maybe 2005 when I was in Oakland. I used to do a Mother's Day brunch in Oakland every uh, Mother's Day. So I was like, I need to come up with some gifts to give out dough prizes. 
So I started making my own spices to make spice baskets for the mothers when they would come to the um to the Mother's Day brunch. So I kind of had backed up for a while. I've been back and doing it for about the past three years. But I, that's when I started back in 2004 or five. I started doing my own spices. Just giving them away as gifts. So, and I just, you know, I just got back in the market and I said, well, let me, you know, do something else because we got all, you know, revenues and money have to come from everywhere. Some days the food business is boom. Some days the food business is it's slow. It depends on what the season is. I mean, you got your slow season, you got your busy season, you got your fast season. You just have to know, you know, what you so you have to have other revenues and money coming in. Okay. Well, the smell of the spices are starting to hit my nose here. So before I kind of dive deep into the gumbo, uh, tell me what should I be looking for and as I take a bite, and what kind of spices do you use? That gumbo, um, gumbo is made with love. So you make all your gumbo with love. And, um, your gumbo starts off with a with a great root. I have a, I have my own gumbo pack called Grandma's um, Gumbo Mix. It's basically a dry root that I start off with, so I don't even have to make my own root. Now I have I have a root that I just add to the pot and just kind of start adding my flavor to it. I have to ground my root. Because coming up as a kid, my grandmother never used um, all to make our roux. She cooked the roux in the oven dry. So that's how I came up with this roux to make for this gumbo um, thing. So if you got a good roux, a good consistent roux, nice color, you just start letting it go. You, you smooth it down and you add your liquids to it. If you want to use chicken stock, if you want to use seafood broth, if you want to just use water. I mean, you just build it up from there. You start building it with love from there. And in your in your pot, they got crawfish um, sausage, alligator sausage, andouille, crab, shrimp, oysters. I mean, it's just it's just love. I mean, when we go to cooking gumbo in New Orleans, I mean, it's different kinds. When you cooking gumbo at home, you might have you put a little bit of everything in it. I mean, they put ham in it, they put sausage in it, they put chicken in it. I mean, it's just a big old pot of love. Wow. Uh, yeah. So um, I just had a. Had a spoonful. I had to turn <laughs> turn my uh, mic off so it wouldn't be uh, you know, making too much noise. But it was quite good. Um, but I'm fascinated dry roux because you know I'm I'm the gumbo chef in my in our house most of the time. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and that's the one thing you've got to make sure you get right is the roux because if it if it gets if it burns, you got to start over. So I am intrigued on the fact that you use dry roux. How how did you come up with that? And what how do you make a dry roux? A dry roux, you just basically, you just, you make your roux, you put it in um, in a cast iron skillet and you just put it in the oven and you just, just constantly stir. You don't have to put any oil, any butter. You just let it brown itself in there, but you just constantly, um, just constantly stir it where it don't stick or burn. And then it comes to the night, you can get your nice peanut butter color or you can get your nice, chocolate color if you want it, but you just put it in the oven and it's cast iron skillet and you just let it go. You don't have to add oh, no oil to it. Just put it in the so oven. That's what makes it dry, the fact that you don't use yes. or butter. Um, yes. And then because of the cast iron skillet, you know, just as long as you're, as you're turning it, it won't burn. It won't burn, yes. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Good to know. I may have to try dry room. <laughs> um, uh, so, I know you run a few restaurants. Um, I think three to be exact. And so what would you say was the biggest challenge to running the restaurants versus 
kind of what you're doing now, or, you know, you know, I think you have the catering company and, you know, of course your sauces. What, what's the hardest thing? The biggest challenge for me, and I tell people all the time is, is, is trust. If you don't have a team that you can trust, it's hard, and I'm still I'm still trying to learn. Like right now, I'm just getting off a flight. I'm in my car. I just got off a flight from Vegas, and I'm on my way to the restaurant now. But I have a crew that I can trust. At one time, I couldn't do anything because it was a it was just my crew. You couldn't trust because you've been burned so many times. So you have to have that that steady crew that you can really trust that you can get out and go do catering, go do speaking engagements on your sauces, and go do um trade shows or whatever you need to do and you don't have to just stay local at the restaurant and you just have to build your team where you don't have to stay local you can move around and how long did it take i guess with this current restaurant to really feel like you you had that trustworthy team yes with this with this restaurant i have now the little it's a grab and go in this little town called pocahontas i have three folks work for me so it's kind of trustworthy I mean, they all know what they have to do. They they constantly they work together as a team and they get it done. For you know, everybody's on time with their schedule and, and I'm just keep when I was in New Orleans, you know, you're dealing with family and it's just you have to you have to back off from dealing with family and business. Family and business don't mix. Can you talk about the challenges of running the restaurant and how that you are um, you've got a team? It allows you to uh, branch out and really talk more about your brand uh, as well as um, net networking, which is important to let people know what you're doing. This networking is key to, I guess, any kind of any type of selling and just notoriety. So that's great. Yeah. One of the things that I know we haven't really we haven't turned to the book, so let's turn to the New Orleans Underground Chef because uh, it's a memoir. And it's basically talking about like your life, but I know in particularly you had mentioned that you had you had struggled with mental illness. So, what made you feel that it was a good time to share your story uh, to everyone? Um, that book there, yeah, it's a memoir of, of the struggle, some of the things that I went through, like in life. I, I started, I had my first restaurant in two thousand and four in um, San Leandro's, California. And I had a bad car accident, and I, 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 I had to shut it down, and that like kind of started my struggle into, to mental distress, I guess. Um, and you know, as being a black man, we never want to say we want to deal with going to see a therapist. We can deal with it on our own, and you know, pray about it. We can talk to this one about it, talk to the pastor about it, but you still have to talk to a professional about it at the end of the day. I mean, you you can have your confidant and a friend that, you know, that's going to go fill a talk with the wife, with the next friend. And that's not, that's not healthy for you when you sharing yourself with somebody and go and share with somebody else. So when you get yourself a therapist, I mean, you can go there to this therapist and sit in this office and just let your soul out. I mean, you don't know who they're going to tell they tell about because you'll never get it back if they do. But most of them won't tell, you know, it's confidential. So I started, um, I started, I used to go to therapy years ago and I started back like a year and a half ago, just because I was at this state where relationships, I didn't know if I was the wrong one. Business, I didn't know if I was doing everything right. You know, as a son, I didn't know if I was doing it right. As a dad, I didn't know if I was doing it right. 
So I still have struggles with different things that I can go sit down and talk to this therapist about, you know, like dealing with my kids and dealing with my mother and I deal with my mother because I'm the only child. So in different ways, you know, we we, we deal together because we we almost like brother and sister than mom and son because we grew up together. You know, we grew up, I grew up with my mom and then we became, you know, friends. We went to California together and it's still a mother-son relationship, but it's still things that you still have to deal with your mom with on a different level. So sometimes we, I struggle with, with that because I deal with it, you know, because thinking she's my friend or my sister and she's not, she's my mother. So sometimes I deal with that. My kids, I got four kids and there's, we have a relationship, but we don't have a relationship. And sometimes I want, you know, if it, is it me? I mean, I was trying, I thought I was the best dad that I can be, even if I wasn't with your mom at the time, but I thought I was, I made sure you had this. I made sure you had that. Um, I, I thought I was giving you love, but you know, it's just, it's things that we deal with. And I think going to a therapist, I think every black male should go to a therapist. I mean, it's just in general, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a relief. It's a peace of mind. It's a big old peace of mind. I mean, even we're dealing with relationships. Some of us don't know how to deal with relationships. So we'll run from relationships. We'll hide from relationships. And going to the therapist and just learning new directions on what you do in a relationship. I haven't been in a relationship for the past, I guess, two years because I don't like drama. And drama, some relationships are drama. And maybe it's, you got to deal, you have to learn how to deal with the drama. But some of it is just too much drama. And that's that was one of the biggest parts that brought me to the therapist was the last relationship that I was in. So I, you know, and I steady, I go to the therapist once a week. I mean, I talk to her 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, we have great sessions. It's just, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's my relief and it's peaceful. When you can sit there and it's just you and that person, you just letting your soul out. Great, great plug for that. And I think if there's any uh, brothers out there that need support, um, around, you know, just find having someone to talk to. But I think also our, our social circles with other men aren't as great either. And so we, sometimes we feel like we're just alone and with nobody to talk to. Um, therapy is a great place. Uh, so um, before we go, I wanted you to talk about cooking for life. I'd love to know what what is it just for our listeners to know and why is it, because I know it's focused on kids, but why do you feel in today's time, uh, it's good for kids to know and learn how to cook. Okay, this project here, I started again in 2004 in Oakland. Um, and I started this project working with the inner city kids, one of the worst projects in Oakland. I mean, we used to do this thing called Dinner at Six, where the kids would come, we would cook dinner on Wednesdays, we would sit down and we would talk. I mean, kids need a safe haven. And cooking to me, can be a safe haven for a kid. When you cooking, it's just mentally. You like I said earlier, I do. I go in the kitchen and I just cook. I turn on some music and I just cook. But kid, cooking can be a safe haven. Cooking can also be, you know, it's it's educational. It's science. It's math. It's English. And if you put all them together, you are gonna come out with a perfect meal, a great meal. So it's good for kids to learn how to cook. I mean. Like I said earlier about the last kid, some kids say, oh, I never ate black beans before. 
You never ate black beans before because your parents never cooked them. So let's try to cook these black beans and you tell me if you like them. We don't cook black beans. I tell kids you can take a cup of Roman noodles and make you a five course meal out of it. You can make it taste like you at Roots Chris Steakhouse if you want them, <laughs> right. if you want it. I mean, <laughs> right. it's you, you noodles, you can do all kinds of things, but you don't have to just put hot water in them and eat them like that. You can take noodles and just make a, a fantastic meal out of it. But working with the youth is a big old, big old part of me. I love working with the youth coming up as a kid. I mean, I didn't have a great many mentors. I mean, I didn't have people to really look up to. I mean, you have your, we didn't have, I didn't have mentors. I didn't have mentors till my late years, to my 20s. I met guys that I considered as mentors. But coming up as a kid, I didn't have nobody I can look up to and say, that's my mentor. But that's the guy, you know, that I want to sit down and talk to didn't have that and I love working with the kids right now I'm trying to you know I haven't really been doing the cooking for life because I've been on the move and I'm not really in New Orleans in the area I'm in right now it's not a lot of kids but once I get back to New Orleans that program will be back full in effect I'm working on some stuff right now to get it back together that's great that's great um yeah I have a there's a similar program here that we run it's called uh, cook eat talk so preparing a meal so um, kids that aren't in safe places can feel safe, talk, and really, you know, kind of basically let their hair down. But I think you can yeah. you can break down defenses with a great meal, you know. So Yeah, that's how it was when we done it in Oakland. I, mean, I can remember this one family, the, the, the little sister was 15, the brother was 12, had just got shot, the 15-year-old daughter had just had a baby, and, you know, these kids didn't have nowhere. They can go and sit down and let their frustration out. Mom was on drugs. Daddy was in prison. So they would come to the center and they would talk, you know, what was going on and how they felt and, you know, what they wanted to do. So it was always good, you know, you just open up to kids. If I tell people, if you can't open up to a kid, you have to not be on a level, but they have to understand, they have to think that you're on a level because we know already been there. And if they're not, they're not going to just open up to you if you're not on a level or trying to understand their mindset. And I just use this. I'm not racist, but a Caucasian person really couldn't come and sit down with an African-American kid that's 15 and understand what they're going through. And I tell people, yes, they might be a teacher, but they still don't understand what's going on in the community. So we have to. We have to take back the village, like I keep telling people all the time. The village is us. And we 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 lost the village when we lost we lost the village. Cause the kids that's coming up now is is my grandkids, my kids' kids. So somewhere in the loop, we lost the we lost our village. And we lost our we lost our kids. And the kids that's out here now is our kids. And we, you know, we have to get them back together. Very um, astute on your part. Uh, so I'm going to um, finish this gumbo. It was quite good. I'm very, uh, I got to, I got to beef my skills up a little bit. Um, but, oh, a couple of things. I know I did want to ask you, um, while you're cooking, you said you like to listen to music. So what's music of choice or who's your favorite artist you listen to while you're cooking? I like to listen to Monica and Mary J. I can put them on all day and just put them on over and over and just listen to them and let it go. I oh, just Mary, put it on and just listen. You said Mary J? Who was the other artist? Ma and Monica. Oh, Monica. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. 
Okay, so I always like to end uh, my show with this question um, because we we're always giving so much of um, ourselves into supporting other people, and we don't necessarily think about how we feel about where we are in the world right that, at that moment. So I always like to ask um, the question is, how are you feeling right now uh, as a black man? Right now, I'm, I, just, I feel overwhelmed because I'm just overwhelmed with just trying to, to do things to leave a legacy for my grandkids. And it's overwhelming, I mean, to do all the things that I'm trying to do. I mean, I try to do the spices, I try to do the restaurants, I try to travel and do catering. And it's overwhelming, so in the long run, this is all be for my grandkids. So they can say, oh my, I know that was my grandfather. That was what my grandfather done. That was my grandfather book. That was my grandfather's spice. So it's overwhelming, especially for a person like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I sleep two, three hours a night because my mind is always running. So it's, it's just overwhelming for me right now. It's very, very overwhelming. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Uh, well, I think you in smaller chunks, maybe it might not be as overwhelming. But I know uh, when we think about legacy, we really want to make sure our loved ones and friends that we care about the most are, uh, are set up. So, Chef D, I just want to thank you, one, for taking the time out to send me the gumbo. I know it took, uh, it took some time and love for you to, to send it to me. Um, I appreciate that. And... Um, and for being on today, especially just getting off the plane. I thank you for that. So uh, lastly, if anyone wanted to, you know, delve into your sauces, you know, how could they find you? They go to www.chefdonaldsmith.com. All right, they, the books is on Amazon or it's on the website, but all the sauces are on my website. And they're shipped out right within 24 hours. Well, Chef D, thank you for being on today on Black Men Speak, and I look forward to seeing you soon. And when I do get to New Orleans, I haven't been yet, so I can't wait to get down there. I'll definitely look you up. All right, thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a great day. Thank you, Chef D, for the conversation and the gumbo. Truly a wonderful treat for this summer day. If you can, check out his website, chefdonaldsmith.com, for his authentic sauces, mixes, and merchandise. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Denny. You can find previous episodes wherever you get your favorite podcasts, like Libsyn, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. As you know, we always like to end the show with a quote, and this one comes from a New Orleans native, Ellis Marsalis. And it goes like this. In other places, culture comes down from on high. And in New Orleans, it bubbles up from the streets. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.